0: Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 4, Episode 11 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. As always, I would direct you to the show notes where you'll find a comprehensive running order of what we discussed and when during the episode. But just to give you the usual teaser, in this episode we discussed, Wolfsburg's system-enabling tenacity, Barcelona's home comforts, Cremonese's Coppa Italia pilgrimage and Didier Degar's excellent start to life in charge of Nice on the south coast of France. We looked at all of those topics and so much more in our usual detailed way. This episode is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops subscription-based newsletter. You find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio, and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit FreelanceFootballOps.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. Right on now with the episode. Hopefully you learn a thing or two or perhaps even three. Hopefully you're all staying safe and hopefully you're all staying well. Thanks as always for your continued support. Enjoy. Love is in the air, dear listener, and we've had to rejig the scheduling for tonight's episode to accommodate Rudy Barlow's and Michael Jones's Valentine's plans. Those Valentine's plans, I should add, were separate, Uh, but yes, such is love, such is the the Valentine's Day celebrations, (laughs) such are rather the Valentine's Day celebrations, but the podcast must go on, the show must go on, Rudy Barlow, how are you doing?
1: Yeah, not too bad. I wouldn't mind it if my Valentine's plans were with Michael. I think he'd be a, a lovely date um, for, for anyone listening out there, just, just to give you a bit more rounded picture about Michael. But yes, no, um, I had uh, had a lovely evening last night, although the, uh, it wasn't a, a romantic sort. I was out for drinks with a few friends. Um, so, so yeah, good. How about yourself, Ali? How are you doing?
0: Yeah, very well. Thank you. I spent my Valentine's night at the gym, and then I watched PSG against Bayern Munich. So yeah, a, a really enjoyable way to spend Valentine's night. Um, yeah, very enjoyable indeed. Now, talking about things which are enjoyable, the Bundesliga brings most people who watch it great joy. Rudy really, Barlow and I think probably for this particular episode, we should start. With yeah, with some some
1: chat on the latest goings on in the Bundesliga. Yes, as you say, the Bundesliga has been very enjoyable and in it, Wolfsburg have recovered from a rather tepid start to the Bundesliga campaign and now sit in seventh place with a string of wins either side of the World Cup, setting Nico Kovac's side up nicely for the second half of the season. Looking back, we spoke previously of the young and exciting squad at Kovac's disposal. With the 2009 Bundesliga champions facing three of the division's top five clubs over the next few weeks, now seems like an apposite moment to revisit that squad and appraise the overall direction of the club's season. So, which players can we expect to see play a key role in the remaining 15 league games and can De dislodge any of the teams currently occupying the European spots? Yeah, Bauer, you're quite right to mention the fact that we
0: did, of course, cover Wolfsburg's exciting young squad in an earlier episode of the podcast. And yeah, just to, I suppose, jog the memories of our listeners, they do, Wolfsburg, have the second youngest squad in the division after Stuttgart. And indeed, you might remember as well, nine of Wolfsburg's starters for their first game of the new Bundesliga season were born in 1998 or later, with four more on the substitutes bench. Over the summer, they, of course, brought in the likes of Jakob Kaminski from Lech Poznan, Matthias Fanberg from Bologna, Bartol Franchic from Dinamo Zagreb, Patrick Wehmer from Armenia Bielefeld, all of whom were under 23 at the time they were signed. Blues new youngsters joined the likes of Maxence Lacroix, 1998-born, Sebastian Bornau, 1999-born, Lucas Mecca, 1998-born, Omar Marmouche, 1999-born, Aster Franks, 2002-born, Jonas Vindt, 1999 born, and Mickey van de Ven, 2001 born. So, you get the picture, Balo, they're an exciting young squad, but for a while, it looked like we were perhaps getting slightly ahead of ourselves. After the first five games of the season, Wolfsburg were without a win and had only two points to their name. They sat Second bottom, they were struggling to score goals and it looked like they were set for a long and difficult season, scrapping at the wrong end of the table. And I suppose when you have a young squad, the last thing you would really want is a relegation battle. Anyway, in a complicated place, Kovac took the rather bold decision to cut road to nowhere cult hero Max Kruse loose from the first team. I'm just going to quote, Kovac, now we demand 100% identification and commitment from every player with a focus on VFL. We didn't have that feeling with Max. That was a comment coming from Kovac after a match against Interact Frankfurt on September 10th. Now, Kovac's teams, as you will know, Barlow tend to be all about discipline, togetherness, and for all his undisputed quality, Cruza is hardly the embodiment of those particular attributes, we've spoken about the type of player he is, his personality at length before on the podcast, and those are to be enjoyed in a certain place. But in Nikol Kovac's Wolfsburg, they just didn't work. Anyway, cut to the chase. The boards ultimately backed Kovac over Kroze, a player on whom they'd spent a not insignificant amount only eight months or so prior, let's not forget, with Kroze eventually released at the end of November now Kovac's decision to remove Kruzer from the first team arguably served I think oh, as a catalyst of sorts as the club then embarked on a 10 game unbeaten run scoring 30 goals and lifting themselves up to 7th place in the table and the progress now beforehand i would have said no cruiser, no party but it seems like no cruiser party was the case for Wolfsburg anyway Just looking at the style of play that Kovac likes to implement, Kovac likes his Wolfsburg side to defend in a compact mid-high to press to force their opponents wide. And as soon as they win the ball, they then look to expose teams with fast transitions. Now, Jasmine Baba wrote an article, a really in-depth article for ESPN, looking at how Kovac has been able to implement this particular approach effectively after some initial admittedly natural teething issues. Essentially, central to the success of Kovac's intense style of football has been Wolfsburg's tenacity. They've registered more sprints and more intensive runs as a team than any other club in the German top fight. Now, as Jasmine notes in her article, these features are vital, as we'd expect, in carrying out defending in a compact shape closing down switches of play, pressing opponents individually, blocking passing lanes and defending in a way that ultimately disrupts your opponents. And those are all now things that Wolfsburg do well. And as Jasmine notes, their improvement in results corresponds almost directly with the upturn in their sprints and intensive runs. Looking now, Barlow at some key players and I suppose answering the first part of your question I think, first and foremost, we should spotlight the excellent Maximilian Arnold. Now, he has started every game for the club this season and operated as the team's real heartbeat in the middle of the park. Now, Matt Pearson wrote an article on Volsper for DW and he mentioned that, yeah, Arnold has been instrumental in dictating tempo, winning possession and redistributing the play for his side. And when we think, about the fact that Arnold has had 11 seasons now at Wolfsburg, this has probably been his best one yet. He's been so impressive actually that there were calls for Hansi Flick to include the 28 year old in the Germany squad for the World Cup but those calls ultimately went unheeded. Notwithstanding that disappointment, Arnold has been excellent for his club this season, in particular his vision and delivery of line-breaking passes have been one of the keys to Wolfsburg's turnaround and As the Bundesliga website notes, he's helped to put the bite back in the Wolves game. A real pun there for the listeners. Arnold epitomises that tenacity we spoke about earlier. And Interestingly enough, only Bochum's Anthony Rosilla, who we of course mentioned in our previous episode, has covered more distance in the Bundesliga than Arnold, who runs an average of 22 kilometres per game, which is, yeah, quite the effort. Looking at other players within the squad, now, we've been admirers of 21-year-old winger Patrick Vimmer for a while now on the Road to Nowhere podcast, Barlow, and the Austrian international was a delight to watch at Armenia Bielefeld, and he's gone from strength to strength following his move last summer to Wolfsburg. Thinking back to his time at Armenia Bielefeld, you might well remember his Rabona assist in Armenia Bielefeld's 2-0 win, over Eintracht Frankfurt last season, a simply audacious piece of skill that epitomised everything that Patrick Wehmer can be. And yeah, I suppose there's a good quote here actually from his former Bielefeld teammate, another road to nowhere favourite, Stefan Ortega, who said, There's something crazy and carefree about him. He's got a youthful folly. If he sticks at it and works on getting some of the basics right, then he'll become even more valuable. At Wolfsburg, he has thrived out on the right wing, averaging a goal or assist every 95 minutes. Coincidentally, Vimmer is at his best when he gets the ball at his feet and he's then able to run at opposition defenders using his pace and ball control to get into dangerous positions, either for a cross or to take on a shot himself. He loves taking on his man ball. He's one of those players who just gets the crowd up off their feet. Quite simply, he's brilliant fun. It's also worth noting that he is one of only three men in Europe's top five leagues with at least five hundred minutes under their belt to have created more than one big chance per game. And the other two players who who can yeah share that claim are, are Kevin De Bruyne and a certain Leo Messi. So esteemed company indeed for Patrick Vimmer. I'm just gonna leave the Patrick Vimmer chat with a quote from Wolfsburg Sporting Director Marcel Schaefer who said he's versatile he can play on either wing but also be used as a second striker or right back he brings power, energy and pace he also possesses great shooting ability he plays without inhibition creates chances and he has an eye for his teammates he wants to keep getting better and he will certainly enhance our game so yeah a very highly rated young player a very exciting young player indeed Elsewhere, you've got 24-year-old Ridley Baku, 30-year-old Coen Castiles, and 21-year-old Mickey van de Ven, who are all interesting players too. And as we've mentioned previously, this Wolfsburg squad is a really interesting case study on the whole. It's laced with young talent and some more experienced stageheads, like the aforementioned Coen Castiles. Now, coming on to the second part of your question, Barlow and Wolfsburg's European aspirations... For a typically mid-to-upper-table team like Wolfsburg pushing for Europe, I think Kovac is perhaps the perfect calibre of coach. While he struggled at Bayern and, to an extent, at Monaco, I suppose, we should remember that he did a really respectable job at Frankfurt, winning the DFB Pokal with the Eagles. Coming back to Wolfsburg... They have stumbled recently after that excellent run of wins either side of the World Cup, and we do have to point out the fact that they do struggle to break down a low block, and they do sometimes seem to run out of ideas in front of goal, as evidenced by their recent 0-0 draw with Wally Schalke. Anyway, as you've noted, Barlow, they face three of the division's top five over the next few weeks. They've gone, yeah, admittedly, three games without a win in the currently set five points outside of the European spots but these upcoming ties present them with a huge chance to make up some ground on the clubs directly above them in the table personally I have my doubts just because the squad is on the whole fairly inexperienced and yeah there's been games like the game against Schalke where they've really struggled to break down a low block but if they can manage to almost I suppose recalibrate following their recent minor blip if they can rediscover that early January free-scoring form, then you would absolutely fancy them to go on and challenge for a place in Europe. Okay, we're going to park our analysis of Wolfsburg there. We're going to turn our attention to Spain now. Michael Jones will step in, I'll step out. We'll yeah pull everything nicely together, we work time wonders and yeah we'll give you the listener the lowdown on all the latest goings on in Spanish football we'll be right back
2: well in Spain this weekend Barcelona went 11 points clear of Real Madrid at the time of recording anyway and although Real Madrid will likely have reduced that gap to just eight points when you are listening to this a 1-0 win over Villarreal was anything but easy but in the calendar year of 2023 they've won every game so far this analysis might look a little silly after their Europa League tie with Manchester United but domestically at least what has Xavi Hernandez done to turn things around so dramatically it looked as if the Blagrana were destined to be playing catch-up when they lost the first class code of the season 3-1 in a comfortable win for Los Blancos.
1: Yeah, well, I'll start with with Quique Setién, who's obviously a former Barcelona manager and probably the the one who's kind of lived out or, or been, I don't, I don't want to say responsible for it because I don't think he was, but uh, was at the helm when Barcelona lost 8-2 and probably had their worst moment in kind of modern history. And he said that the one difference, he highlighted it before the match um, and then again sort of after the match, he said the one difference after the match was that uh, this Barcelona side competes. It's uh, it's very quick, it's it's very competitive, it really sort of goes into these challenges and, and it makes kind of a big difference. And before the match, he highlighted the fact that Uh, On average, when the team doesn't have the ball, this Barcelona side is the team that runs the most in Spain. So that kind of shows you that this is... We now have a Barcelona side that is really hardworking, that works off the ball better than it does on the ball these days. It's a defensively very sound side. We're still... We're now at only seven goals conceded in the entire La Liga season. That's 15 clean sheets out of 21. Only I think it's only Real Madrid that managed to score more than once against them in La Liga. So, yeah, this is a side that is very solid now. Xavi, since the break, the World Cup break, has now added in an extra midfielder. So we're now playing, tends to be sort of a, a, a midfield kind of four with one of them nominally going forward. So you've got Frankie de Jong and Sergio Busquets, who's, who's now injured, but Frank Kessier has come in for him. He's kind of maintained that forward last couple of games. So you've now got a two kind of base, and then you've got Pedri, and then Gavi. Gavi tends to be kind of towards more of the left-hand side, and then it tends to have, uh, well, it was Rosmane Dembélé before he got injured, but now Rafinha on the right, and Lewandowski obviously up top. And it's really made this Barcelona side click. It's really made them kind of yeah really turn them into a solid side whereas before they could be kind of spectacular at the start of the season but not necessarily solid and not necessarily convincing and so it's kind of funny because Xavi has kind of swung between these kind of different paradigms and to a certain extent it, it tells you about the uh, versatility of the Barcelona side and the amount of options that they do have and that's to their credit but also this was a Xavi team that for most of his spell and charge that we've been saying, it's surprising just how vertical this Barcelona is. It's surprising just how uh, little kind of control they seek or how little they seek to put their foot on the ball. And one of the things that kind of defined Xavi's side up until now was the fact that he was so keen to have those two wingers, at least one of them sort of glued to the touchline, but the other one also quite wide coming in and really making it sort of a a basketball-style game at times, especially with kind of Rafinha and Ousmane Dembélé when both of them were playing at every side of Lewandowski. And so you saw a side that was quite surprising, I think, to most people just given the way that Xavi played and he was kind of the master of control, the kind of ticking clock in the midfield. That was what he was kind of famous for. And now we've gone to a side where what defines them is their solidity off the ball. They are also very good on the ball, but less less in control of the game than you'd think still. But the fact that they can break teams down is down to Gavi, it's down to Petri, it's down to Lewandowski and the kind of combinations that they've been putting together between them, Sergio Busquets and Frankie de Jong. De Jong's just been fantastic. It's the best I've seen him in a Barcelona shirt since he arrived these last kind of few weeks, especially, he's stepped up. And without Busquets against Villarreal, he was he was one of their best players. And that kind of back three, the solid back three of Araujo, Kunde, and Christensen. Christensen has been the big surprise. He's been very cool, calm, and collected. Don't think anybody really saw him starting. But the fact that you now have Kunde at right back means that you have three of those four positions are pretty much locked down. Alejandro Balde has been really really good and defensively surprisingly good as well but what has happened with those kind of three central defenders is that although kunde does get forward and does kind of uh, move up forward from the the right hand side those three tend to sit a bit more and it allows you with gabby sort of moving more inside it allows balde to be the kind of width on the left hand side and so you have a an attacking system where with the ball, and once they've kind of all moved forward, you do kind of have a front free with Baude Lewandowski and Rafinha Baude, with the advantage of the fact that he's arriving into that space rather than necessarily just being there, which I think was one of the problems beforehand when you had a little bit of a sort of static attack in some ways, because it was always kind of ball to feet. And that's one of the things that uh, Chavez really worked on with Rafinha. But, but yeah, and then, and then yeah, it's just kind of become a way of also just getting Barcelona's best players on the pitch. I mean, it was kind of the debate earlier in the season was that do you have De Jong sat on the bench? Do you have Gavi sat on the bench? The fact is that those two both are amongst Barcelona's 11 best players. And so now that Xavi's found a way to get all of them onto the pitch um, and when Dembélé comes back, I'm sure he'll kind of replace Rafinha. But yeah, Barcelona now have a settled side. They have defensively solid sides and they have a system that seems to work for them whether they can maintain that throughout the rest of the season, because, I mean, depth is an issue and, and Rafinha has done reasonably well since Dembele went out. Kessier in the two games since Busquets went out has done okay as well. But uh, but yeah, if they can maintain this, then it's really hard to see anything stopping them, certainly in the league. And it'll be fascinating to see how they get on in the Europa League, especially against Manchester United and uh, potentially kind of the likes of Arsenal down the line. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to be... Interested in, as Barcelona said, a lot to be excited about if you are um, culé-inclined, so to speak.
2: Yeah, I'm really excited to see how they get on against Manchester United this week. And a team they've just beaten twice, or beaten once actually, and played twice, Leeds United, who have just sacked Jesse Marsh. And their sporting director, Victor Rota was in Madrid last week to attempt to recruit Andoni Iraola from Rayo Vallecano. Ultimately, it didn't happen, and Iraiola looks as if he will be staying with Rayo at least until the end of the, the season. We praised him to Hilt last season as one of the most exciting talents in Spanish management, and many Leeds United fans are aware of the fact he once played under Marcelo Bielsa at Athletic Club, once again had their Bielsen fantasies awoken. Why didn't this move happen ultimately, do you think, Barlow?
1: I've got a bit of bit of a bee in my bonnet here, Michael. I'm a bit sort of... What the reporting essentially went as it was Victor to travel to Madrid. And the initial reports that came out of Spain, out of Vondacerro it was initially, was that Iraula t- turned down a move to Leeds. He, he was going to stay and see out the season kind of understandable as it's, it's it is fairly risky to a certain extent is you're doing a really good job at now. You potentially have a shot at the European places. I mean, it's still an outside shot, but you do have that shot. They are currently sat in European positions. Or you can go to Leeds, potentially get relegated in the next four months, and then you you don't quite know how things are going to pan out after that. So for once, Ryo was the relatively stable option, which is very unusual for them. Um, and whether he stays beyond the summer, I don't know. But then the kind of reports, I think it was Sky Sports came out with the the sort of information that Ryo had blocked a move. And it's just like... Well, okay, potentially they could have said no, but he does have a 10 million euro release clause. And so if Leeds had wanted to unblock this move, then they could have done. It was totally up to them. And people can say, well, that's a lot of money. But I mean, this is a Premier League side and you're robbing a a relatively kind of humble financially side of their best assets. So 10 million doesn't really seem a lot to me. And if, if people want to call that as blocking, I think that's just and um, sticking up for yourself it all has been very kind of feet on the ground and said well okay look we were kind of around the champions league places last season we ended up 12 so we're not going to get ahead of ourselves now but they are just really exciting to watch i was at vacas a couple couple weekends ago now it was uh, well it was last monday um and they're just really fun I mean, Isi Parathon is increasingly kind of moving from kind of cult hero into actually just a really good footballer and one of the best in La Liga. He's kind of got nine, ten goals, I think it is, contributions uh, this season. Frank Garcia is off to Real Madrid at the end of the season. That tells you just how good he's been. I've, I've never been so excited about a recovery run in my life. I, I saw him go kind of 70 yards up the field and then sprint back the entire way. Um, after he'd kind of had a shot saved and he was back across the halfway line before the ball was out. I've never seen anything like it. He's He's got an engine on him. And then you've got kind of Lejeune and Alejandro Catena at the back and both kind of quite uh, lanky central defenders, strong, big, good in the air kind of thing. But also the two of them just kind of spraying passes from from central defence, even when they're under pressure. And that that's quite the confidence to watch. And uh, it was a really exciting game. And when they beat Almaria 2-0 when I was at Vlecas. But yeah, they're they're not far off the Champions League places. I think it's five points they're off now. They're they're in sixth place. They're a really fun side, they're really impressive. But I do I do think they've been slightly miscast in the sense that Bielsa is the obvious comparison because he worked under Bielsa. And don't get me wrong, there are traits of Bielsa in this kind of Rayovay kind of side. There are traits of kind of the bravery, there's the pressing, there's the trust in the footballers to to kind of make good decisions, but if I'm going to compare him to one manager, the, and I think he's obviously a blend of his various experiences. I mean, Joaquin Caparoche has had a had an influence. I think Jose Luis Mendilibar is kind of of a similar school of thought to him in many ways as well, but the one manager that I want to compare him to is Ernesto Valverde, because he has a similar kind of humble, low-key streak to him. He's not seeking the spotlight as I said I mean uh, Joe Donahue was kind of, uh, we're kind of in conversation with him about kind of the Leeds links and stuff and uh, it, it was a very kind of, people were saying it was a very Bielsa answer that when he was asked about Leeds in this press conference following that Almeria match he said well I mean I'm here because of the, the players and their kind of success, this is, this is all them this is without them I'm nowhere, so and people were saying that was kind of a very Bielsa answer but I, th- I think the way that he tries to go under the radar is very much more Ernesto Valverde-like and and Bielsa Bielsa stands out because he's so kind of charismatic and he does things so idiosyncratically whereas Eriola is a little bit different. I think he works hard, I think he's ambitious I think he he's probably more uh, what's the word? More of a disciplinarian than we see um, in the media because I think you have to be to a certain extent but he works with his footballers in a very kind of a way that kind of separates them from the spotlight. And you see, you see, we've spoken about Rio, how kind of chaotic they are in the past. Real de Tomas is there. He's one of the most chaotic players in Spanish football. I mean, the, supposedly there was rumors that the president had a, fro- a stapler thrown at him by one of the players because he rejected a move at the last minute. Pate Cis was due to go to Leon. So yeah, like yeah, this is a club that should, by all accounts, not be where they are. Irra has got them where they are, partly because of his attitude, his ability to separate the noise and just give his players a chance to play football. And even if they make mistakes, they're not too worried about it because they know that Iraola's is not going to feel the pressure in the same way that a lot of managers would. And and that, yeah, that really reminds me of Valverde because he might, I think he's also a little bit more flexible than Bielsa. And that's something that Valverde shares. He's a, he's a pragmatist to a certain extent as well. Even though they seek pressing football, they seek attacking fun uh, teams, they do have that little bit of extra flexibility to say, this is not working or I'm playing against Real Madrid, so we might have to drop an extra 10 yards kind of thing. So although there is Bielsa in him, I think there's a lot more to to this picture than than Iriola if he does eventually probably make the move to the Premier League at some point in his career.
2: Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, I didn't know what a bee in your bonnet meant, so by listening <laughs> to you now, uh, I, I think I'm a bit more aware. But yeah, good on Rayo. And good on Jakub Yankto. It was uh, it, only hours before we recorded tonight. He, the Czech international player, owned by Hetafi on loan at Sparta Prague at the moment, but player I'm familiar with, spent half a decade at Udinese in Sampdoria in Serie A as well has come out as gay and in terms of the sort of you know listing the clubs in that sense I, I guess some people might say well in some context it shouldn't matter what he's achieved and in some respects it doesn't but it also does shed a light on the sort of magnitude of this annu- announcement by a fully fledged international and he just deserves enormous credit, doesn't he? It's it's obviously not, can't have been an easy decision. And yeah, I think it's a fantastic day for football when there aren't always that many of them off the field in more recent times.
1: Yeah, after my gloom last episode, there's a lot of positivity and a lot to be happy about this week. But uh, yeah, Jacob Yank to enormous credit to him, as you say. It's really refreshing. And I think he sort of revealed it through a Spanish uh, media source, Relevo. So so yeah he he's obviously owned by Hitafe and he he spent the last kind of couple of years in Madrid before going back to Sparta Prague. It's a real step forward for Spanish football because this is the first kind of top flight footballer even though he's not currently there as we were saying, um top flight footballer that's kind of come out as as gay as homosexual and just kind of addressed it and I think Spain has various sides to it as does any country. Hopefully we'll get to a stage where either nobody needs to because it doesn't matter, or it's not a thing if somebody does. And hopefully we're at, we'll get to that point. But right now, we're not there, I don't think. I think that's fair to say. Um, And it's significant for somebody in Spain or in the Czech Republic to look and see one of their players is openly gay, is openly homosexual, and, and feel that they've got kind of, yeah, a role model and that it's possible to be themselves. And if you want to parallel that across to the women's game, Especially, I mean, you've got Alexei Portejas, who's who's kind of the Ballon d'Or winner. You've got various members of that Barcelona side, the Barcelona Femini side, who's one of the greatest sides in the women's game currently. And various members of that side are out as well. And it is reassuring to know that there's kind of progress being made when on the flip side, we have kind of all the, all the dramatic, kind of disgraceful trouble with Vinicius that we're not sort of going entirely backwards and there is some kind of progress being made. So yeah, hats off to Jacob Biancto. There's better people than me to talk about this, to to give their opinions on this and, and what this means. And I'm sure they will do so in due course, but um, yeah, I think we should t- tip our hats as well. So yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, congratulations to Jacob. And I believe that's it for Spain for now. We were going to discuss Carol Arim, but maybe that's one for the future. But yeah, over to you, Barlow, as I believe you have a few questions for me next.
1: Yes, thank you, Michael. On to Serie A and Italy. For the first time in four seasons, Inter Milan find themselves more than 10 points adrift of the league leaders, yet sit second in Serie A. Being the only team to have beaten Napoli this month with three victories in their last four, whilst reaching the last four of the Coppa Italia and a favourable Champions League tie versus Porto next week, in spite of a lack of silverware since arriving at San Siro, how has Simone Inzaghi kept the mood in Milan on a high, Michael?
2: Yeah, I think it's been a testament to one of his greatest traits as a manager that we've seen in the past five years or so, both within Milan and. Lazio and it's been his man management has just been brilliant through what's been a difficult time and it has never been an issue in fairness to sort of blight his career as of yet but Simone Inzaghi certainly had an uphill task of convincing Inter Milan supporters I believe that he was the man to be taking them forward and I think he's restored some of that trust recently and I think you kind of have to cast your mind back to when he took the job off Antonio Conte with Juventus falling off, it seemed like Inter Milan were possibly in a position with just having Marotta also at the helm, sort of orchestrating the club's finances and transfer dealings, that they were in a position to do what Marotta had done with Juventus and dominate Italian football for years to come. And that's already, they didn't win the league last season, despite being a great position at this time last year. and they just started to fall off and... They obviously look like they're not going to be challenging for the title this season, despite finding themselves in second. Although it would be third if Juventus did not face that points deduction. But the hangover into this season was certainly felt, as well as their drop off from the title race last season when AC Milan in the end won quite comfortably. And they'd already suffered five defeats by the beginning of October, including the Derby della Madonnina versus. AC Milan, but there's been such a turnaround since then, since the beginning of November. They have won nine out of their past 11 games and um, two of the teams they've dropped points against, on ones you may expect, but two of the more in-form teams. They drew to Monza, who are doing fantastically well on the field, at least, at the moment, if not for uh, Silvio Belasconi's acts off the pitch. And the only team they've lost to during that period is Empoli, and I've got a wink face on my notes because Obviously, we discussed them a lot in detail last time out. But going back to the the Milan derby, they won to sort of symbolise the turnaround. They defeated both AC Milan in the the Cup, but also in the league recently with a 1-0 victory. And I was comparing the two games. I watched this game recently, but then I watched the 3-2 defeat they suffered earlier on in the season when in the midst of this sort of poor run at the beginning of the campaign. And so many of the sort of physical aspects, similar to what you were discussing with Areola, really different. The intensity, the fatigue, the energy, all all of AC Milan's dangerous uh, goals, even from that win earlier on in the season, came from Inter Milan conceding the ball inside their own half. The spaces between the midfield and the defence were huge, even with the attack as well. And Simonian targets always played this free four-three or three-five-two system similar to Conte but a very different sort of much ten, teams tend to play higher up the pitch and have more ball retention also but even looking at that game they almost came back versus AC Milan Lautaro Martinez should have scored and Mike Mynon was absolutely excellent and you know in terms of the teams at the moment Lautaro Martinez has found his goal scoring touch and Mike Mynon was not playing in that game and i think those two things did have Big impact, but Lautaro Martinez. We had a similar conversation during podcasts last season, and Lautaro Martinez's goal scoring form seems to be essential for Inter Milan playing well. You know, when he's in great scoring form, Inter Milan tend to play a lot better, which is you know pretty a pretty sensible assumption when you're talking about a team star striker. But given the World Cup, he had where he, although he won the World Cup, it was almost bittersweet for him because. He was very much, went from, got demoted from a starter to an impact substitute. Even at that, he probably could have won the World Cup for Argentina during normal time, but who are we to criticise in that sense? But his, his form since the World Cup, it seems like a bit of pressure has been lifted off his shoulders to be, you know, winning something with Argentina, at least. He scored five in his past five games, looks to be really enjoying it, but Most importantly, and we're going to kind of come back to this management of Inzaghi, is that he's been handed the captaincy for the past three games. And the captaincy has been a real tale of Inter Milan's season. You know, initially, the longest player, uh, serving player, Samir Handanovic, the goalkeeper, had the responsibility for the opening sort of 10 or so games. And it was quite interesting that... The discussion surrounding Handanovic, who has certainly been one of the best goalkeepers in the world, in Europe the past decade, despite not being the best goalkeeper in Slovenia for most of it. But he has really sort of seen a drop-off, particularly since Inter Milan won the title. You could even point to errors made during that. But there was a lot of responsibility seen for his role in Inter Milan's drop-off last season. And in the arrival of André Anana from Ajax on a free transfer after his uh, drugs well, initial drugs ban with Ajax, he's been a revelation in goal for them. He certainly brought them more comfort at attack. Whilst the captain's armband was handed over to Milan Skriniar and a bid from Inzaghi to rebuild that trust with the defender, who has been constantly linked with Paris Saint-Germain over the past year or so. And rightly so, in terms of his playing abilities, you know, again, I think he's one of the best players in his position in the world. But his head certainly got turned last month and Inzaghi, knowing what a valuable asset he is to the team, decided to just take the captaincy off him, but not, despite calls from some fans and some of the media, not to completely isolate him from the team. So he's still been a big part, but without having the same responsibilities and the same privileges that now Lautaro Martinez does, and he seems to really be taking it in his stride. as a real aggressive play to him at the moment. Um, I think that's always when Martinez is at his best, It's when he's sort of throwing his body on the line. He's got sort of, such amazing anticipation for heading the ball despite him not being the tallest of strikers, and his header versus AC Milan in that game was a fantastic, really brave header, but also leaning backwards whilst other Defenders were attacking the ball and he managed to sort of guide it into the goal. It's a really good header, which I'd sort of recommend that people watch. But there's just been also little changes. And one of the things that I've always liked about Inzaghi is that he's always kept faithful to his system, but there's just been slight tweaks here and there. Francesco Acherby, a player who was so valuable for him during his time at Lazio, he's become a regular starter. The only game he did not feature in. In the past 10 or so, is the Empoli defeat, whereas the ring back situation has also altered. I think Denzel Dumfries, a star player from the World Cup again, very different sort of tournament for him than Martinez, but he's maybe had a bit of a hangover since then. But Federico Di has been an outstanding player for this season. Matteo Damian has really stepped up. He's kind of trusted um, often Italian players that Enzaghi's been able to rely on during the season. And I think, you know, there is a very he's very much a manager who has absolute faith in his system, I think he's set clear boundaries with the players who seem to respect him and the club and although they may not win the league this season, I have them favourites to win the Coppa Italia, that semi-final between them and Juventus, the winner will certainly be the favourite, but Inter Milan I have to play it at home and they'll certainly be favourites going against FC Porto in the Champions League next week, although FC Porto have a great record against Italian teams in the last few years but it's a really good opportunity for them to progress in two competitions and finally bring home some major silverware for Rinzaghi because a lot of his work has merited that.
1: Another team who have reached the final four of the Coppa Italia are Cremonese. The newly promoted side have surely won the Curious Case Award in Italian football this season so far, having gone winless in their 22 games in the league since returning to the top division. Cremonese have eliminated, eliminated both Roma and Napoli from this season's cup. How can we explain Cremonese's crazy season so far, Michael?
2: Yeah, from the outset, it's just really bizarre in the sense that they've been able to dismantle these top teams in the cup and they have just been absolutely useless in the league. But the explanation has become quite clear once you look into them. And again, from the outset, it's almost like having a lower league team in the top division by default who are just having an amazing cup run. Uh, Le Herbier, I think that was a the name, they got to the final of the Coupe de France four or five years ago. Bradford City in the league around a decade ago rings a bell as well. But, you know, Cremonese are historically an important club in Italy. They were one of the first teams in the, in the initial Serie A season. They finished bottom, in fact, which is sort of nicely reflective of their position right now in the league. But... They also were a club where Gianluca Vialli, who of course sadly passed away earlier this year, made his breakthrough as a player. Another star of the 90s Italian football, Enrico Chiesa, father of Federico, also had his breakthrough season with them. And they've only very, rarely frequented um or been a part, a member of Serie A. They had a couple of seasons in the mid-90s, but between then it had always been one season stays. And this one certainly looks to be the case also but in terms of sort of where it's all gone wrong for them I I think it sort of leads to wider problems in Italian football a bit further away from the limelight and the maybe the standard sort of infrastructure conversations and the sort of youth development are often echoed around even though the youth development in Italy does seem to be taking a positive turn at the moment but they were led to Saria by Fabio Pachir who may be a familiar name to some Last season, he was the assistant to Rafa Benitez during his days at Napoli, Real Madrid, and Newcastle United. Was a mixed success in those stints, especially at Real Madrid. And he actually did have some top-flight experience. He got L.S. Verona promoted in 2017, then they got relegated the season after, before taking a job at the Juventus youth team, and then got Cremonese promoted, but left after doing all this great work by leaving for Parma, who still are in Serie B, but have a lot more money to their name. And he's had mixed fortunes there. I think Parma's eighth in Serie B at the moment. But this subsequent appointment is was maybe one of the most eyebrow-raising, startling appointments in Italian football that summer. And they went for Massimiliano Alvini, who had no top-flight experience, nor as a player or a manager, very much was an amateur player at best. And his sort of highest level of accolade was leading Perugia, a team historically in Serie A, to eighth in Serie B last season. Again, not really in the promotion discussion, but Cuyo, which I believe is the way you pronounce it, are a team who we led to, from the regional leagues to Serie C over a five-year period a decade ago and he's had mixed success and he got Reggiana promoted to Serie B but he'd never really made any impact at a high level let alone Serie A and if you'd looked at his successful stints they seemed to be when he'd built a team over time and for Cremonese coming into Serie A on a limited budget this just seemed destined to fail which unfortunately for Alvini, and I don't think it will be the last time we see Alvini in Serie A, I think if he's given a proper project, it looks like we probably could see him lead a team up to Serie B. He's got enough promotion experience under his belt. But it was one that was destined to fail, and he got sacked on the turn of the year. Davide Balladini, a guy we discussed a couple of years ago, kept Genoa up, has taken over. And whilst he's still not got them a league victory, they did scare into Milan in the league. They gained for them in the lead. Uh, just a few weeks ago before Inter Milan came back courtesy of Altaro Martinez but he has overseen these brilliant, this brilliant cup run where they have defeated league leaders Napoli who can't really put out that week aside at the moment on penalties before defeating AS Roma in the Coppa Italia also with Jose Mourinho saying that it was one of the as well as it being the worst competition in his eyes, it was also one of his worst results but it's just been such a difficult season for them. They've had an interesting recruitment strategy, largely from the Belgian league, Cyril D'Aziers, David Okereke, uh, Jack Hendry's just joined. And there has also been a number of free agent additions. The most high profile one in Italian football was probably the arrival of Alexa Paniccian, who arrived on a permanent deal from Roma, quite surprisingly, after breaking free with Jose Mourinho. He scored in that cup game. But what they seem to have tried to do is... Emulate a model that's failed for the past two seasons in Italian football as well, through the likes of Venezia and Parma, who have both got relegated from a, from Serie A in the Serie A from the past in the past two seasons, and it looks like Cremonese I mean, will be the third team to do that. Especially a lot of recruitment from different European leagues with no sort of prior Serie A pedigree, and I think it's not just sort of emblematic of team scouting strategies being very scattered and almost a bit desperate when they reached the top flight, having not maybe had the experience that they've been there before. But the club's not holding on to their managers due to resources. We discussed empty last time. out They've had very different success, but under Alessio Dionisi, they were unable to hold on to him when they got promoted. He's, of course, now at Sassuolo. And the overhauls perceived... You know, due to the gap in the top two tiers, I think it's been a real issue where teams like Salernitana who miraculously stayed up last season, but probably shouldn't have based off 80% of the season. And Venezia and Parma have all seen sort of way close to 25 players going both ways during transfer windows, which just doesn't seem a method to try and keep teams up. But Benevento have also proven during that time that it's very difficult also to, have made very little additions and stay up. So I think it's a difficult moment for teams bridging the gap between Sarriabee and Sarriabee, especially teams that don't have the kind of pedigree that the likes of Palmer may have. He may be a bit better prepared next time they come up. But certain players at Santiago Mascaseba, Joan Vazquez have underwhelmed. And there is a one bright light, Marco Canazeschi. The goalkeeper is impressed. He's online from Atalanta. Atalanta. But yeah, it's a sorry case. But if they can progress through the cup, it will be a really fantastic story. And I'd love to cover a Sarah B team that are playing in the Europa League next season. That would be really sort of that might help bridge the gap just a little bit more.
1: Yeah, I have always said it's better to get relegated and win a cup than it is to to stay in the league and go out in the semi-finals or wherever. And um, but yeah, fingers crossed for Cremonese. Next up, we'll be moving on to France as the uh, Miss Universe candidate pronounces it. A little bit of a rare current pop culture reference on RTN for you there. Um, If you do get that, let, let us know on Twitter if you do. In Ligue 1. No team has picked up more points than Nice since former Middlesbrough midfielder Didier Digat took charge of Les Aiglans about a month or so ago. A run of five wins and a draw under the 36-year-old's guidance has lifted the club from the south of France up to seventh in the table and rekindled their push for a European place. Away wins against high-flying Lons and Marseille have, will particularly impress the club's hierarchy, just Taking the customary road to nowhere step back, Ali, where and how does Degas spell with the four-time champions of France sit within the wider picture of Nice's Jim Ratcliffe era? Yeah, Barlow, I think to answer your question, we need to
0: go way back or not way back, but certainly a few years back to the immediate pre-NEOS years, those years immediately before the Jim Ratcliffe money came in. Now, when we think of shrewd and sagacious dealings, there's a lovely word for you, in the transfer market in the mid-2010s, we often think of Monaco, that 2016-2017 league and winning side was almost perfectly assembled. However, along the coast, Nice also made a bit of a name for themselves as sensible operators in the world of scouting and recruitment. Uh, there was manager Lucien Favre during his first spell in charge. There was president Jean-Pierre River and there was director of football Julien Fournier uh, who, who were responsible, at least in part, for ensuring that Nice were one of the best-run clubs in France in the mid-2010s. So against that backdrop, you would think that the EniOS takeover in 2019 would have allowed the club to really take itself to the next level and establish itself perhaps even as a perennial title challenger for PSG and that was certainly the intention. Some of the early chat when that takeover was happening from Jim Ratcliffe from other figures gave the impression that Nice were really going to give it a good go and were really going to give PSG a run for their yeah, quite exorbitant levels of money uh, shall we say and yet Barlow, that hasn't really been the case. Despite the vast wealth of Ineos and Jim Ratcliffe, Nice haven't been able to kick on. And in fact, there's an argument to be made that they have regressed over the last few years. Now, they had three top four finishes in league 1 in the six years prior to the Ineos takeover. Since the takeover, however, they finished 6th, ninth, and most recently 5th. They've gone through five managers in that time. They've underwhelmed in the Europa League, finishing bottom of their group. Let's not add, they've lost a Coupe de France final in demoralising fashion last season to Nantes. They crashed out of the same competition this season in humiliating fashion against third-tier side Nipouille. The list goes on. Barlow, quite aside from those mostly on-the-pitch failings, and I appreciate that you can never really fully separate on the pitch and off the pitch, they're intrinsically connected. But anyway, quite aside from those mostly on-the-pitch feelings, it's Nice's recruitment, which perhaps best exemplifies the club's overall incoherence, shall we say, and lack of direction under Ineos. Now, Sir Dave Brailsford, that's probably a name that rings a bell for a few people. He is, of course, the former Team GB cycling coach, who's now the director of sport at Ineos. He carried out what can only be described as a root and branch review of the club last summer, which set in motion a number of changes. CEO Bob Ratcliffe left, the aforementioned director of football, Julian Fournier, left, and of course, Christophe Galtier left. At that point, the former Crystal Palace and Cardiff City director, Ian Moody, was then brought in as a consultant to assist with transfer negotiations and what followed well, was a string of altogether woeful and or uninspiring signings including Ross Barkley, Aaron Ramsey, Joe Bryan, Nicola Pepe, Casper Schmeichel, Mads Beck Sorensen and couple those recruits with the fact that Walter Benitez, who is arguably one of the best goalkeepers, if not the best goalkeeper in league, on last season, he was allowed to leave on a free his replacement, the aforementioned Casper Schmeichel, has really struggled. But yeah, do have to admit his, his levels have picked up in recent weeks since Deegar came along? Elsewhere, Beck Sorensen, who I mentioned, uh, he was signed on loan from Brentford on deadline day. But uh, yeah, he returned to his parent club last month without playing so much as a single minute. So a disastrous signing, that one. The defeat against Lupuy in the Cup represented an nadir of sorts for Nice and it ultimately cost Favre his job. However, with the sacking of Favre and the arrival of Didier Degar, the storm clouds have, for the time being at least, started to clear. As you quite rightly point out, Barlow, no team has picked up more points than Nice since Degar took charge. And quite simply, he's revitalised this Nice team. He's got his players smiling again, he's got the players believing in themselves again and he's got them playing some really entertaining football now, one player in particular who is thriving under Degar is 28-year-old striker Gaetan Labord. He's scored four goals in six games since Degar took over and he gave a really insightful interview to L'Equipe in which he spoke about Degar's coaching style, highlighting the intensity and high work rate that he brings to the team. Now, Tony Dunois at Get French Football News very kindly translated the key quotes from that interview. And I'm just going to relay some of those now for the benefit of you, Barlow, and the listener. What Laborde says does give us an insight into how Tagar has steadied the South Coast ship. Um, so, essentially, Laborde spoke about the differences in coaching styles between Tagar and his predecessor, Lucien Favre, and he said, He asks us to be higher, to recover the ball faster, to do counter-pressing. We insist on this. It's okay for me. It allows us to create more situations. It's easier to make stats with three, four chances per game than with a half chance every game. Degar's training sessions are short and high energy, designed to replicate in-game conditions and keep the players moving at maximum speed. So Laborde was asked if these sessions are more intense than Lucien Favre's training and you can imagine the answer Laborde said largely yes it's timed to the nearest second, there is a little rest but it is timed between two exercises, it can be a 30 second, 45 second or one minute break but a minute is rare as the staff rather explain it to us they really want us to train like we play, it is rare in a match to have more than 20 or 30 seconds of rest except to have a stoppage of play, so you have to put intensity in training so that you can put it back in the match. So I think that interview with a player full of confidence, yeah, it does shine a real spotlight. It does help us pull back the curtain on the early days of the Degas regime. High intensity and yeah, getting his players to really buy into his training methods. In terms of his preferred formation, Degas has typically set Nice up in a four-three-three formation and Degas was questioned actually on his tactical philosophy. It has Unveiling as manager, or rather as interim manager, by friend of the podcast, Luke Entwistle. Luke has, of course, been on the podcast previously, now speaks regularly on Le Beaujeu, the official league and podcast. So when Luke questioned Didier Degas about his tactical philosophy, Degas replied, ideas are good, but it is applying them is most important. We're going to put everything in place with it is dynamic and ambitious. We really want to have possession of the ball with lots of runs, lots of effort, and above all, lots of enjoyment. So I think that sums up quite nicely, actually, what we've seen over the course of Degas' first six or seven games or so in charge of Nice. Now, if I were somehow the Nice manager, if I was to go on and do a will still, shall we say, I think I would build a team around the excellent 21-year-old Catherine Turam. Now, Turam actually spent time in the Barcelona Youth Academy as a youngster before spending time in the esteemed Clairefontaine Academy in France. And let's not forget, he is the son of Lillian Turam and the younger brother of Marcus Turam, who course plays with Borussia Mönchengladbach. Now, Turam is attracting a lot of attention and if reports are to be believed, Liverpool, Newcastle and Juventus are all taking a right good look at Kefren. Turam. Under Degard, Turam has typically operated either side of the holding player in the midfield three. He's a very confident ball carrier and he sits in the 94th percentile for progressive carries and the same percentile for carries into the final third. You may well have seen his quite brilliant run against Lons where he carried the ball for an age and very nearly scored a goal for the ages. That's peak Kevin Turam. Do go and watch actually the highlights of Nice's win over Lons to catch that run. It's majestic watching him in full flow bearing down on goal. He can operate in a deeper role where his press resistance and his ability to break up opposition attacks allows him to thrive. Now, with his height and his technique and his playing style when he's sitting deeper, the official league on website actually likened him to a certain Sergio Busquets. Now, he's got a lot of development to, to do if he wants to reach the heights of peak Busquets, but I think that does give you an idea of just how Turan plays, of how Turan sets himself up. As we saw against Montpellier, Turam can also operate in a more advanced role. He scored a goal and provided an assist in that game against Montpellier when Degar deployed him in behind Gaetan on almost as a number 10, if you like. He's also averaged more than two shot-creating actions per game over the last year. So yeah, definitely a player who can play deeper or further forward. Our friends just on... A closing note on Turam, Anyway, our friends at Scouted Football describe Turam as an aesthetically pleasing footballer. He glides across the field and oozes confidence. A very classy football player, Barlow. Somewhat unrefined, I think we could almost say he has an unrefined elegance to use an oxymoron. We love an oxymoron on this podcast, Barlow, to, to take the listeners back to standard grade or higher English if they sat their exams in Scotland. And yeah, Turam is... Definitely one to watch over the next few years as he defines his skill set, as he becomes more elegant. Looking to the future generally for Nice, I really like Degas. His ideas have breathed fresh life into an apparently ailing club. Let's also not forget that he captained Nice as a player and made over 160 appearances for the club. So he's the quintessential case of appointing a manager who gets the club up next for Degas and Nice is a clash with Will Stil's headline-making Rance squad. So that will perhaps be one of the most narrative-laden encounters of the league and season so far. I'm looking forward to seeing how that one pans out. Looking at the bigger, longer-term picture I spoke in our previous episodes when we looked at loans about Frolong Gazolfi and his integral role in building the loan squad, currently challenging for a European spot. Now, as I mentioned in the episode, he swapped the northeast for the South Coast in October, having been appointed by Nice as their new sporting director. Fabrice Bocquet also joined from Lyon as CEO in September. Now, those two appointments on paper anyway seem really sensible and they do suggest that Nice are finally starting to head in the right direction. Time and a few transfer windows will tell. Okay, my voice is starting to give way. So I think on that note, we will draw this episode to a close. Rudy Barlow, what
1: are your plans for the rest of the week? Anything special lined up? Uh, not just yet. I'm I'm trying to work out if I'm going to go head to, to one of Madrid's football games this weekend. But I've not uh, settled on anything quite yet. Atleti are playing athletic club. Um And it is, it is rather tempting me into it. So, uh, yes, and, and I might find myself at the Simpitas Metropolitano for another cold Madrid evening, I think.
0: Nice to have the opportunity. Nice to have the choice, Barlow. Uh, well, I think I'm going to probably spend the rest of the week work aside just relaxing. Um, I think I'll take a, a Saturday, a chill Saturday, a self-care Saturday, you might say. Barlow last Saturday I was up in Dundee for Kilmarnock's Scottish Cup win over Dundee United and I was going to fan... say
1: you won't be dealing with Kilmarnock then oh no
0: no it's self-care Saturday in, in Kilmarnock 10 not to to go hand in hand Kilmarnock are away to <laughs> to Hibbs uh, so I think I'll probably give that one a miss this weekend having enjoyed a fantastic away day in the Cup at Dundee United last time out um, but yeah I think with that I will say thank you to Yuri Barlow I'll say thank you to Michael Jones Michael dialed in at another point in this call we're working the the magics of Zoom to fit this episode together like a like a jigsaw if you like and I'll say thank you as well to you the listener hopefully you're staying safe and hopefully you're staying well until next time thank you and goodbye